So I gather we are uh, T minus two days from the big day. I love Christmas. I sometimes complain about a few of the things that go along with Christmas, but I do love Christmas itself. I'm not really even a Christmas purist, despite those complaints. Not every Christmas song or hymn needs to sound like a quote from Isaiah. Not every Christmas tradition needs to justify itself biblically. Most of our, or at least many of our Christmas traditions, are harmless fun, even if they don't go very deep. You don't really need much justification to have a good meal with family or to show generosity towards each other. Winters are really long here, and so it's good to have a time of celebration near the longest nights of the year. But I think it is possible to get Christmas wrong, at least as Christians it is. It's become cliche to ask, what is the true meaning of Christmas? But it's not a meaningless question. I've never heard anybody ask, what is the true meaning of Halloween, for example? But we still ask that about Christmas. That's the question behind How the Grinch Stole Christmas, Charlie Brown's Christmas Special, and National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, more or less. And I conclude from those that Christmas is not about toys, it is about Jesus, and it probably has something to do with families and fantastic lighting displays. But what else? What does Christmas mean? If you look at some of the presidential addresses to the nation on Christmas, you get insights like the following. Christmas is not a time or a season, but a state of mind. That gems from Calvin Coolidge. Or consider this dizzying insight from Nixon. For one of the lessons of Christmas is this. Among God's greatest gifts to man is the gift of giving itself, and the more we give of ourselves, the more of ourselves we have to give. Right? Uh, Reagan in 1981, the nativity story of nearly 20 years ago, 20 centuries ago, is known by all faiths as a hymn to the brotherhood of man. I suspect that's news to some of those faiths, but put that aside. So we get that it's a state of mind that has something to do with giving about the brotherhood of all mankind. These happy, cheery notions. Christmas is, in this view, a bundle of unbridled universal positivity. But there have been times when that kind of cheery sentiment becomes almost impossible. In Christmas, 1941, just a little over two weeks after Pearl Harbor, Roosevelt and Churchill give a joint address to the nation from the White House. As you might expect, the tone's pretty different. Here's Churchill. Here, amid all these horrors, we have tonight the peace of the Spirit in each cottage home and in every generous heart. Therefore, we may cast aside, for this night at least, the cares and dangers which beset us and make for the children an evening of happiness in a world of storm. So if it can't be a time of universal goodwill, maybe it's a time out. A diversion for children, maybe adults also, to temporarily distract us from the pain of life. In that view, Christmas is kind of like a strong drink after a hard day. It doesn't make the problems go away, but it might make them hurt a little less, at least for a little while. 
So maybe Christmas is a sentiment. Maybe it's a temporary break from reality. As Christians, of course, we have a different answer. We'll be quick to say, Jesus is the reason for the season. Which is true enough. What does that slogan mean? The popular Christian answer goes something like this. At Christmas, we celebrate the greatest gift ever. God's free gift to us of Jesus. Jesus came and died on the cross to take our sins so that we can go to heaven when we die if we'll trust in him. Now that's a much better answer. And though we ought to say more than this, this is an essential part of the good news. But if we just leave things there, this can sound like Christmas and really Jesus is just one more avoidance mechanism. The world's going to hell in a handbasket, and Jesus came to give us an escape hatch. It's a mixed metaphor, I realize. But. So wait out your lives on this wretched planet because something good is coming after we die. If those are the only options, I'll still show up for Christmas dinner, but I'm not sure there's that much to celebrate. On any of those views, Christmas isn't really much more than a guilty pleasure. There's all the real and tragic troubles of the world over here, and then Christmas is some light and trivial thing over there that says nothing to those troubles. Does Christmas have anything to say to the serious business of suffering and injustice and death? If not... Maybe it's better than nothing, but it's not a lot better than nothing. But if that's what Christmas means, Mary didn't get that message. In response to the news that Mary is going to give birth to King Jesus, Mary responds in praise to God, and she says, God has brought down the mighty from their thrones, but exalted the humble. That God has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he has sent away empty. Whatever this is, it's not what we're used to hearing this time of year, and it's nothing like those other views. Mary doesn't sound like she's in the Christmas spirit. She's supposed to be talking about the brotherhood of man, but she wants the proud scattered. Christmas is about sugar plums dancing in our head, but Mary thinks it means justice and deliverance from oppression. We are hoping for a good meal. Mary's hoping for a revolution. What I want us to see today in Mary's song is that Jesus, our King, did not come so that we would deny evil in an overflow of positive sentimentality. He didn't come to temporarily distract us from evil and injustice, and he did not come simply to give us an escape from it all. Jesus, our true king, came to conquer sin and death. He came to establish his kingdom, to restore and renew all of creation. He comes to rescue his people, to feed the hungry, to exalt the lowly. 
Now that is something to celebrate. So let's look at our text for tonight. It was a large text that Rachel read, but we are going to focus particularly on what people uh, call Mary's song. That's 46 through 55, I think. We're going to let Mary show us the breadth of this Christmas hope. We're going to start there, focusing first on the hope of Christmas, but we also need to talk about the warning of Christmas, and then we'll come to the calling of Christmas. So hope, then warning, then calling. But before we move forward to look at the song of praise, we have to look back. In fact, Mary's song points us back to the beginning of Scripture. In 54 and 55, Mary praises God because he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Jesus' coming means that God is keeping his promises. His promises to Abraham and to Israel. It's really important that when we read this, we realize we're coming into a story that is already well underway. More than a millennium before the birth of Jesus, God had promised to Abraham that he would bless Abraham and make him into a great nation. God would bless Abraham for a purpose, so that Abraham's line would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Abraham's line would be the means of God setting right all that had gone wrong with the world beginning with the sin of Adam. That had not happened. Aside from a few short periods of just rule and faithfulness to God, Israel was largely marked by the same kind of idolatry and injustice to each other that was characteristic of the surrounding nations. They broke covenant with God And so God punished them for their sins by sending them into exile. They were kicked out of the promised land in much the same way that Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. So jump forward 600 years after the exile to first century Judea where the Gospel of Luke begins. Some of God's people returned from exile in the 5th century, but many did not. Moreover, many of the old problems are still there. The religious leaders of the people are corrupt, and the temple system itself is one of the worst offenders for exploiting the poor. The most vulnerable, the widows, the orphans, are not being cared for. Judea is ruled by a deeply wicked, paranoid, and bloodthirsty king, a puppet king of the Romans named Herod. So the exile of God's people may be over in a strict technical sense in that many have returned, but many of the signs of exile, of God's displeasure, remain. So throughout the Old Testament, we hear this repeated lament. How long, how long, O Lord? How long before God would forgive and deliver his people? How long before God would redeem his people and bring justice? In Habakkuk, we read, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? The wicked surround the righteous, 
so justice goes forth perverted. How long, O Lord? How long? Your people are suffering. The poor are abused. Violence is rampant. How long? Mary is waiting for the time prophesied in Isaiah when God would tell his people to be comforted because her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. Mary was waiting. She was hoping for God's anointed king, promised in Isaiah 61, where we read, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Coolidge is wrong. Christmas isn't a state of mind, whatever else we say about it. We are talking about the coming of a king, born of Mary, the son of God within Bethlehem, within history. That's certainly the hope that lies behind and suffuses Mary's song. Let's read it again. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Jesus is coming, Mary says. Praise the Lord. Mary recognizes that the coming of this child the long-expected king is an act of God, and so she praises God for it. To the question, how long, O Lord? Mary's answering, now. Now God is coming near. Now he is coming to deliver and to save. But what will happen when he comes? Let's continue reading. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. The coming of this king means that the world gets turned upside down. The humble are lifted up. The proud and the mighty are scattered and brought down from their thrones. The hungry will finally eat their fill, but the rich will go away hungry. I suspect this part makes us a bit uncomfortable. And I've heard versions of Mary's song sung, sung very nicely, which cause no offense because they delete these verses entirely. Some people see it and think, Maybe Mary got carried away a bit. The first verses are nice. The last verses are nice. It's the bit in the middle that we wish she would have showed some restraint. It's definitely the case that Mary's song comes across as a bit aggressive. And note how different Mary's song is from some of our popular Christmas hymns. There's no angels with harps of gold here. There's not a hint of sentimentality. Mary's looking forward to Jesus as king, and that's serious business. And it's not just Mary. If you look at Luke 6 and other parts of the gospel, Jesus uses much the same language. 
So we may wonder then, what kind of justice is this? Is Mary talking about the restoration of justice, or is this class warfare? Is life a zero-sum game? For the poor to be lifted up, the rich need to be brought down. I don't think that's it. Mary and Jesus are not proto-Marxists waiting for a workers' revolt. In that kind of revolt, the humble and poor lift themselves up by aggression and violence. The poor hope for a chance to get their turn to be powerful and wealthy by grabbing that power for themselves. That kind of revolution has a tendency to fall into a vicious cycle. The oppressed become the oppressors until the next revolution. As we'll see, that's not the way the revolution of Jesus works. More than that, the targets here are unjust acquisition of wealth, the unjust hoarding of wealth, and exploitative power. To prosper economically under a tyrant like Herod in first century Judea almost inevitably requires injustice, as it does today in corrupt and tyrannical societies. The more corrupt the society, the more suspect the acquisition of wealth. A wealthy North Korean is, by definition, something that arouses suspicion. We also shouldn't read economic justice as Mary's exclusive focus. Mary's hope is expressed in shorthand here. Food for the hungry, exaltation of the humble, these are all part of the promises of God's restoring work that we read over and over again in the Old Testament. This is what things look like when the Lord returns to Jerusalem and asserts his rightful rule as king. Mary had sung for a few more verses. She could have continued with the many other promises of restoration, like from Isaiah 36. The eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute Sing for joy. Mary is hoping for the kind of revolution that only comes when God reigns. Mary is hoping for the justice, flourishing, and glory of the kingdom of God. Christmas is about hope for God's kingdom, about hope for its expansion, about hope for his justice and righteousness and healing for all creation. And we see the dawning of that kingdom in the Gospels. We're going to look at that in a moment when we come to the calling of Christmas. But first, the warning. We don't associate warnings either with Christmas. But frankly, we should. We might shrink back from it But we can't deny that that theme is prominent in the early chapters of Luke and in Matthew. Christ's coming comes with a warning. And John the Baptist says over and over, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And Jesus repeats that warning. We want joy without justice and justice without judgment. But that's not how it works. For those who rely on their wealth or prestige or power or anything else, Christmas is not good news. Jesus is coming. Beware. 
repent. For those who make a show of repentance but bear no fruit, Christmas is not good news. Mary's hope includes warnings. Jesus is coming. The proud will be scattered. The rich will go away hungry. So that leads us to the calling of Christmas. How do we respond? Is there any good news for the rich, for the powerful? For this, we need to go beyond Mary's song to the life and ministry of Jesus to see how this revolution begins to play out and to see how we are called to respond. In Jesus' ministry, we see Mary's hopes begin to be realized. We see the humble exalted. And we see that it's not humility in a generic sense, but those who humble themselves before Jesus are lifted. Those who fall at Jesus' feet and in repentance and in need are lifted up. They're made whole. So in Luke 5, we see a man who is sick with leprosy. He falls at Jesus' feet and says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus touches him and makes him clean. He heals him. He restores him. He lifts him up. In Luke 8, a sinful woman is broken over her sin and comes to Jesus in humility, in love, and falls at Jesus' feet, weeping. Jesus tells her, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He heals her. He lifts her up. And we see this over and over again in Luke. The lame walk. The blind see. The sick are healed when they fall before Jesus in repentance and trust. Jesus is bringing healing and new life to the humble to the repentant. The humble are those who fall at Jesus' feet and look to Jesus for healing. Mary hopes for the hungry to be filled, and we see that too. Jesus feeds people by his words, but he also just literally feeds them. We see him feeding a crowd of 5,000 who sit at his feet, listening. Jesus feeds his disciples at the Last Supper, Again and again, people who come to Jesus hungry go away well fed. We also see the rich and mighty brought low. But surprisingly, it's not now primarily by judgment. The rich and mighty are humbling themselves. We see a centurion humble himself before Jesus. He asks for healing for his servant. And Jesus affirms his faith and heals the servant. We see Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue. Again, he falls at Jesus' feet and he begs for healing for his daughter. And Jesus heals her too. We see Zacchaeus, a wealthy tax collector, repent before Jesus. He gives back all he defrauded and gives up half of his wealth to the poor. Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house. The high and mighty also are called to repentance, and some hear and repent. The good news for the high and mighty 
is that they too can be lifted up if they will first be brought low. That's the pattern of this revolution. That's the way Jesus began his great kingly work. Jesus tells us in Luke 18, in what is something like the thematic verse for the entire gospel, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The message is the same to us who look back on his first coming but await his return. Jesus is coming, and the place to be is at his feet. Humble yourself before Jesus. He stands ready to forgive and to save those who come to him in need, in hunger, with no hope for their salvation but him. It's a call to come to the feet of Jesus at the cross. At the cross, we see the gravity of our sins, but we also see his love for us. We see the justice of God satisfied in mercy for those who repent. We see the humility of our king at the cross, followed by his exaltation at his resurrection. We see our king who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, for us. It's here that we see both the pattern and the power of our salvation. So the calling of Jesus, of his kingdom, of Christmas, is to humble yourselves before your good and loving king, If Christmas comes with warnings, it also comes with instructions. Confess your sins and hope only in Jesus. He stands ready to forgive. All who humble themselves before this king will be lifted up. All who come hungry to Jesus will be fed. So the Christmas hope is no less than the great, expansive hope that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is now in heaven. The Christmas warning is for all who stand against Jesus and rely on their own strength. The Christmas calling is for us all to humble ourselves before the king who loves us and gave himself for us so that we too would be exalted with him. And so at Christmas, we celebrate the coming of our king and the beginning, the inauguration of his kingdom. We celebrate the great turning point of world history. There is a direction to world history. Christ is now working in and through his body, his church to continue his mission to conquer evil and set things right in all creation. We've been commissioned with that task under his power and by his spirit. We recognize that the church has gotten it wrong severely and far too often. But that just ought to lead us to pray 
that God would empower us and make us faithful. Make us faithful to proclaim the gospel, to care for those in need, to minister as Jesus did, both in word and in deed, for his glory. And we also look to the future. We're not there yet. We wait at this time of Advent, knowing that we have only seen the first fruits of a much greater harvest. We're waiting for far more renewal, far more restoration. We wait knowing that Jesus is king, but much of the world remains in rebellion, trusting in wealth, might, prestige. And we recognize with shame that there's still far too much rebellion in our own hearts. We, too, trust in our own wealth and power far too much. And God cares about justice more than we do. God's concern for the suffering is far greater than ours is. And that leads us to repent. We humble ourselves and ask for forgiveness knowing that he is gracious and he will forgive. In short, we wait in this time in between Christ's first coming in Bethlehem and the time when he comes again to make all things right. So at Christmas, we do not deny evil. We do not ignore it. And we don't escape it. We humble ourselves before our king, knowing that he will lift us up. We wait with hope for the time he will return to make all things right, when he will end all injustice, all poverty, all sickness, all death and sadness. We wait in hope for the day when we will hear the voice of God saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. For the former things have passed away. Beware. Jesus is coming. Be ready. Jesus is coming. Be joyful. Jesus is coming. Let's pray.